the tendency is to want to say, well, I don't need certainty. I can live in the ambiguity. I can live in the mystery. I can accept all of that. There's something to be said for that. I mean, a verse that I've been pondering the past few days has been, you know, in first Corinthians four, where Paul says that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. The, there is absolutely mystery and it's actually something for us to steward. And, you know, and so there's something to be said for that. Right. And there's a lesson to be learned there for some churches and traditions and Christians. Like let's, maybe we don't need a hundred percent certainty on everything. Maybe we should lean into this mystery and instead of trying to steward certainty, steward mystery. Right. So I understand the, the, uh, inclination there. Right. But, but you're right. And I agree with you in that there's only so much mystery that we can handle. And the Lord knows that that's why the, the Lord is incredibly mysterious and he has revealed himself to us so that we can actually know him. Ian Harbour is with me today. Ian is a marketing manager at Endeavor and a writer. He's written about faith and technology, deconstruction and reconstruction, and he's done so for the Gospel Coalition and Mere Orthodoxy. Additionally, Ian has contributed to the book, Before You Lose Your Faith, Deconstructing Doubt in the Church. And he's the author of a forthcoming book in 2024 about deconstruction with InterVarsity Press. He also has a newsletter over on Substack where he writes about faith and life in a post-Christian age called Back Again. We'll put a link to it here in the show notes. Would definitely encourage you to subscribe and keep up with the new content that he's writing. He and his wife Katie live in Denton, Texas with their son Ezra and are members of the Village Church Denton. Ian, welcome on to the show. Thanks, Andrew. I'm excited. Yeah, I have been wanting to talk with someone about themes that you've written so well about, uh, both at the Gospel Coalition, but also at your Substack. Um, and so I really appreciate you being willing to, to come on. We've connected really just online. Um, we have a mutual friend, Samuel James, who's been on the podcast. I don't know if you yes. and Samuel know each other personally or if you've just connected online. We've just connected online, but uh, man, I love Samuel. He's great, and he's been a massive encouragement to me. He's a great writer, too. I aspire to write like that guy does. <laughs> he is a great writer. He just had a book come out as well, and I'm hoping that he'll be on the podcast here in the next few weeks. But I really appreciate you guys. You are some younger voices that I believe you guys are talking about issues and challenges that modern believers face, uh, especially here in the West in a very, in a first world setting uh, around issues like technology and how it shapes us, how it challenges us, but also this whole, I, this whole idea of deconstruction. Both of you guys have written on that in a, in a really helpful way. And recently you wrote an article called doctrinal probabilities. And we're going we're gonna to dive into that throughout this conversation because several of the points that you make and even some of the suggestions that you, you give your readers in that article, I think are uh, very helpful. But before we dive into that and into the heart of our conversation, maybe just share with us a little bit about who you are, where you're at, and what life looks like for you these days. 
Yeah. So um, the way if anybody has come across me online, uh, the way that they've probably gotten there is through this conversation about deconstruction. Uh, a few years back, in fact, the week before the pandemic shut down, I uh, shared some of my story on the Gospel Coalition about my deconstruction, reconstruction story. And really, that was just about me growing up in right here in Texas and uh, growing up in the church in a broken family. Uh, but, you know, for all intents and purposes, a good home. Um, but just coming face to face with lots of difficult things, with suffering, with um, with the po political things here in the South, uh, just lots of questions that I had uh, just growing up and really not finding any place where I could, I mean, much less answers, much, I couldn't find a place to safely bring these questions to light, you know, and discuss them. And so that led to a deconstruction journey uh, that lasted probably the better part of 10 years uh, or more. And it, uh, you know, there was a little bit, there was kind of a, a small place there where I'd say I actually deconverted. Uh, and then, you know, kind of found myself back in the faith, but just spending so much time wrestling through um, all of your classic doctrinal issues, cultural issues, issues with the church, mm -hmm. uh, experiencing more church hurt down the line than I had already previously experienced and just all kinds of different things. And so, um, so that deconstruction eventually led me to uh, a theological training program at a local church mm -hmm. I didn't even go to. And that was um, quite the experience. Right before I uh, started that, my grandfather who raised me uh, passed away in a plane crash. And so, and that was uh, really my last close living family member. Everyone else, it was kind of gone for different reasons, whether death or disownment or different things like that. And, um, and so I was walking into this training program in the darkest part of my life. And one of my teachers on the first day of this program stood up and said, we do theology in the light so we can stand on it in the dark. And I thought, well, okay, I'm in the too late for me. I'm in the darkest part of my life right now, but you know what? Let's, let's do this and see how it turns out. And sure enough, uh, as crazy as it sounds, if the theology is, is faith seeking understanding about God, then uh, seeking understanding about God can actually bring you a lot of hope and peace in the midst of trials and tribulations. Uh, and so that, that program for me served as kind of a foundation um, to rebuild, reconstruct my faith. And so that is kind of the journey that I've been on for years now. Uh, that kind of led to that article at TGC, which uh, led to many other relationships and it's been, you know, wonderful, the people that I've met since that article. Uh, and now the opportunity to kind of distill a lot of these lessons that I've learned over the years into a book for InterVarsity Press. Um, there's a lot of really good books that have come out over the past several years on deconstruction. Uh, you know, there's several that I've really enjoyed a couple I've read recently. Uh, every book that I have seen has been a pastor or a professor or someone else writing a book to people who are deconstructing, tr trying to walk them through it. And, you know, better or uh, worse degrees of success to that, I think. Uh, but I hadn't seen anyone from the opposite perspective, who is someone who, you know, I'm not a pastor, uh, I'm not a professor, but someone who had grown up in the church, experienced deconstruction, come out on the other side with a stronger orthodox faith uh, and really wanted to turn around and talk to the church and say, 
hey, these people who you know who are deconstructing, that's probably really confusing and scary for you. Let me try to help explain what's going on and how we can make our relationships with them in our churches, uh, places where they feel like they can bring their questions and their concerns and their doubts and their, their fears and be met with grace and love and acceptance and not feel like they have to leave the church, much less their entire faith behind to wrestle through these things, but they actually can work them out in the context of relationship and the local church. So that's my hope for the book. Um, I guess we'll find out in a while how well I succeed or fail at that. Uh, but that's, uh, that's kind of my desire is to write that book on deconstruction, but from the opposite perspective and back to the church. Man, I, I love that. You know, this ministry into the harvest is all about helping ordinary people both live and share their faith in everyday places. And I think that's really what we see in scriptures is that it was just regular men and women. They, they, weren't, they weren't professionals. They weren't necessarily um, educated intellectuals, but they had a deep-rooted faith and they knew how to live that faith and share that faith with other everyday people. So uh, like I said, I appreciate you the journey that God has had you on and the work that he's doing in you right now, I think writing from that perspective is going to be very helpful for, for a lot of people. So I'm excited about it and uh, we'll definitely be checking it out uh, when it does release next year. This idea of deconstruction and even the word, I, I feel like it's something that has gained a lot of momentum, especially maybe over the past 10 years. I'm sure it was something that happened in the past and maybe we just didn't have a word for it. But, but both the, the term and the phenomenon, I think it does seem like they're gaining in, um, in how often we see it or hear about it. So for someone like myself who, you know, I went through, I don't know if I would call it a deconstruction. In fact, I, I wouldn't. I appreciated, um, I've seen how you've described what deconstruction is. And I, I do think that there was a period of time where, where I had to take ownership of what I believed, uh, because all of us are brought up and, and we're, we're raised by the people, the circumstances, the places that we live in, and we're shaped by those. Our worldview and our belief system is shaped by those. At some point, hopefully for all of us, we, we get a chance to critically examine, do I really believe this because it has merit or just because I was brought up in this setting? So maybe as a starting point, how, how would you explain what deconstruction is? And then maybe we can, we can move forward from there. Yeah. So the defining deconstruction is tricky uh, because the moment you define uh, this experience, you inevitably find someone who says, well, that's not my experience. And so you have to kind of account for a lot of different things. Mm. I set out to kind of write my own working definition uh, because as someone who went through it, I had personally become very dissatisfied with the ways I had seen deconstruction be talked about in the public square, right? So I sort of had, for the most part, kind of these two competing ideas around deconstruction. So one of them had a really kind of a fairly positive outlook on deconstruction. You know, they would say, hey, deconstruction is just nothing more than asking questions. It's just trying to, you know, figure out your faith for yourself and wrestle through things. And you know what? That's awesome. In fact, Jesus deconstructed. You know, he said, well, you've heard it said, what did I say? And, you know, like, you know, that's a good thing. We should encourage people to deconstruct. And I thought, oh, well, okay, you know, it... 
it is those things. I mean, it is, you know, wrestling through your faith and trying to ask questions and it is that, but that's not, I can tell you right now, that's not what it feels like. It feels terrifying. Like it is scary. It feels like everything's falling apart. And so there is that that's not false, but it's not entirely true either. And then you had this other one that was much more kind of doomsday about mm. deconstruction. They said, you know, deconstruction is just one step, you know, on the way to apostasy. Uh, stay away from it. Don't do it. Don't even think about it. Because if you're deconstructing, you're as good as gone. And, you know, don't do it. It's bad. And I was like, well, OK, uh, if you deconstruct your faith, you could leave, you could apostatize. You could leave the faith. So, again, the element of truth. It's not all wrong. But it, but. I mean, I, I deconstructed and I'm still a Christian and I know plenty of other people who have deconstructed and they're still Christians. And so that's not an inevitable outcome. Right. Um, and so I just was not really happy with how either of these groups were talking about it. And there's other ways to talk about it, too, that are, you know, kind of hit the same thing. Kind of mm -hmm. true. Not really. So I tried. I tried my darndest to kind of synthesize these things into a working definition. And so it feels a little clinical, but the way I personally define deconstruction is a crisis of faith that leads to the questioning of core doctrines and the untangling of cultural ideologies, which settles in a faith that is different than before. <laughs> so to unpack that, you know, deconstruction really is first and foremost a crisis. It is a crisis of faith. And that's what I felt like most people fail to understand is they look at the more kind of almost scientific part of it, of the examining beliefs, mm. but they miss this really thick existential layer that feels like a trap door opened up from under you. And you landed in a dark room with no lights and you're, you're not trying to piece anything together. You're just trying to feel around for a light switch to turn the lights on. Again, you know what I mean? And right. wherever that light switch happens to be, great. I just hope you find it. You know, that's what it feels like. Hmm. And I think you have to account for this existential layer in deconstruction or we're just talking about fundamentally different things. You can talk about bits and pieces of it, but you're going to constantly be talking past each other because you're missing this piece. Mm -hmm. They're feeling this, but they may not know how to articulate it. You see part of it, but you don't know how they're feeling. And so we're just really on a qualitative level, talking about completely different things. But it does lead to these other things. It leads to the questioning of core doctrines. It leads to the untangling of cultural ideologies. And I think part of this, uh, part of having a good definition for this is allowing wiggle room and places to move, right? I mean, not everybody's deconstruction is the same. So, uh, so my deconstruction contained elements of both. I would say it was more primarily doctrinal heavy. Like I really was trying to wrestle with the Bible and doctrines and God and those types of things. For other people, they have questions about those things, but it is kind of more cultural. Like, you know, how can the church support this or allow this or do, right. do these different things or, you know, turn a blind eye to this issue or mm. different things like that. Right. And now sometimes one leads to another. Uh, I think sometimes, especially the uh, the cultural, the more cultural heavy can lead to more doctrinal things down the line. So you have to. This is this is a process. This is a journey. This isn't a static thing. And so you have to leave a definition that has room for people to move in it. And I think uh, that kind of allows people to do that. But right. then it all it always settles in a faith that's different than before. Nobody who goes through deconstruction is going back to what they were before. Hmm. Uh, they might find themselves in a, in a stronger faith the way I, I have. Hmm. I I believe that the people that I, the environment that I was in, that I deconstructed out of, I believe those people are Christians. Uh, 
the way I would understand my faith and some really core parts of my faith and practice my faith is very different than that environment now. Hmm. Um, I, I don't think it's unrecognizable, uh, but it's, it's different than, than the place I came from. Uh, some people will leave the faith entirely. I still say it settles in a faith different than before, because I don't think anybody can live without faith. If you don't have faith mm-hmm. in God, you have faith in something else. Yeah. You have faith in an ideology. You have faith in yourself. You have faith in, uh, you know, material goods. You have faith in something. Right. And so, uh, that's why it, that part of the definition is a little bit of a push yeah. to some of the people who leave the faith and say they don't have it anymore because I want to say, well, you do, it just looks different than yeah. before. And now we can have a conversation from there. Right. Well, I, I, uh, that's one of the things that really drew me to your article, uh, the doctrinal prob- probabilities article. I've also, I, I've, I felt for a, a long time now that everyone has faith and everyone, in a sense, everyone lives by faith. Now the Bible says that the righteous will live by faith. And it's talking about uh, a faith that is rooted in what God has revealed. But the mechanism of faith is something that everyone has to operate by. And it, it gets into this, it get, that's because all, none of us are all-knowing. Therefore, uh, all of us have a limited understanding of the world and life and, and reality. And so faith is basically the only way that you can operate if you don't know everything. And, and your article talk, touched on certainty and uncertainty and how that actually is required to have faith. So I want to I wanna get to that article. Um, but before we before we get there, something you were talking about with deconstruction, how it is a crisis. Do you, in your experience or in your view, is this crisis always driven by something external? So whether that's um, someone who challenges those doctrinal presuppositions that you started with or someone or something that begins to spotlight how your belief system is out of step culturally or socially or, or, or fails to live up to what the culture needs. Is there an external cause that leads to the crisis or do you think it's sometimes something that just comes from within? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's not one thing. It's a confluence of things, right? I think some of them are internal, some of them are external and they all kind of bubble up until the house catches on fire and Mm. things fall apart. Right. So kind of the way that I try to articulate what catalyzes deconstruction are, are four things. So the first is a comfortable society. Uh, you know, we have for all intents and purposes lived in a very prosperous society, the most prosperous society in the history of the world. We are not accustomed to difficulty, suffering, right? Even, uh, even as we experience that, we see those as deviations from the norm rather than the norm itself. Uh, and that has to do with the comfortability that we've grown up with. I, I experienced a lot of suffering in my life. Like it's uh, a big part of it. I don't feel like anybody ever told me that that was really, really normal. And in fact, redemptive in God's work. Right. And so the, when suffering can puncture, those sort of false expectations of what I call like an up into the right spirituality, where I feel like my life always needs to be going up into the right. My faith always needs to be going up into the right growing is all the time. And if it's, if I'm not going up the line then I'm backsliding, going down the line, you know, and like, it's way more complicated than that. And so the first is as a comfortable society. The second is cultural Christianity where basically all our faith is, is a, you know, 
cultural identity marker for us way more than it is something that is actually real to mm -hmm. us and core to who we are as human beings. And, you know, you see that in uh, how churches disciple their people or how they don't disciple their people. Uh, you see it in how uh Christianity uh, churches get tangled up with politics, which kind of comes to my next point here in a second. Um, but essentially, I mean, you raise a generation of people who, one, aren't really seriously discipled in the church much at all. And then, two, you, you know, go through events in life like certain elections and certain crises in our culture. And you realize that maybe the people who raised you to believe these things didn't believe it the way they said mm -hmm. they did. Uh, at least not, they don't practice it the way that they taught you to practice it. Again, that's incredibly disorienting and can cause some cracks in the walls uh, that can make your house not as uh, sturdy as before. So the third thing would be compromised institutions. And this is where kind of you see the church becoming a performative institution rather than a formative institution. This is something Yuval Levin talks about in his book, A Time to Build, where he, this is not a Christian book. He's talking about institutions right. <laughs> in general. Think about, think about, you know, Washington, right? Of yeah. how these people are not being formed by our, you know, our branches of government in order to govern our society well, they're using it as a platform mm -hmm. in order to perform for us to gain mm -hmm. notoriety, to gain money, to gain, you know, it's entirely compromised, it's entirely corrupt. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the same things are true in our churches, where we've we've given up the gospel message in order for power and prestige and status in society. Mm -hmm. And so we've lost, we've become performative. And so our churches are no longer forming people uh, because we've mm -hmm. sold out, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so then all that kind of comes to a head in the fourth point, which is compounded anxiety. And that's, that's more of the suffering, right? Eventually you have things happen over time. It doesn't have to be big things. It can be death by a thousand paper cuts, right? Or eventually, whether that's cultural things or doctrinal things, all these questions add up and you start bringing them to people and you're noticing incongruities and people don't have answers for you. And they're kind of mad at you for even bringing up the question to begin with because it's threatening to them. And so then you kind of, you go, well, you guys are compromised in this way. No, I don't think any of you believe this thing, these things anyway. So why is God allowing this stuff to happen? Hmm. I'm out. Hmm. Uh, and so those kind of four things, I think, are, you know, the match that light our houses of faith on mm -hmm. fire and make it really, really difficult to live in. Yeah, it's it's so well put. And, you know, one of the questions I've had is, is this happening more with more frequency in modern times than it has in the past? And I, I think yes, but for the reasons that you mentioned, and perhaps it's that these institutions were healthier in the past, that there was... Uh, more alignment between the the purpose of the church and the life of the church that that it had not gotten off track, but also um, just this idea of, of of having deeper roots, you know, um, which is why it's so important for for each of us to examine our faith and and to test the faith and to go far deeper into scriptures and what we believe than any of us modern people would would tend to think um, because the the crisis is is coming that this crisis of faith is going to come it's almost um, it's almost impossible to avoid if you when you have a, a faith that is has those limitations inherent to it both uh, in terms of my personal beliefs but also the the, the broader life of the church um, yeah we're just out of step with with society and culture in a way that um, we haven't been 
in past generations. And I, I do think that the information age is also part of this, where the voices that that are offering alternative gospels or, or, or alternative worldviews are so much louder that if, if people can't get congruence with historical Christian doctrine, if they don't really know why they believe what they believe, it, it's hard to not it's hard to not have a crisis, but, but the crisis itself, I appreciate the hopeful note that you sound. It can lead to a truer faith. Like you said, it's going to be different, but, but actually a truer faith. Um, it's, it's scary for those of us who are watching people we love and care about go through because we also realize that there's that fork in the road that it, it could lead to an abandonment of, of the Christian faith. But as you think about what helped you rediscover Orthodox Christian faith, what were some of the the, the key factors that helped you make those turns? Mm. I mean, it's 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 a lot of things all at once, you know. Uh, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's kind of the reverse of some of those things that I just said, right? You know, it was realizing the place that suffering actually has in in our faith and the redemptive way that God uses that in order to point us toward him and form our character and uh, all those different things. It was being in a church that actually cared about, cared about so much, cared about people, cared about the scripture, cared about discipling people, cared about, you know, where they were able to, you know, Jesus has that line about every teacher of the law needs to go into their storehouses to bring out treasures old and new. They did that. And I've hmm. never seen that happen before, you know, of just going like, oh, this is the faith that I have missed all this time. You know, I spent my time in different kinds of churches and, you know, one church never talked about the core essentials of the faith of Jesus and who God was and the resurrection and scripture and those types of things. They always talked about the secondary things and that's what mm. they divided over. Mm. Um, I went to another church that they didn't talk about theology at all. I mean, they just, it was as therapeutic as it gets. It just, we're just trying to help you have a better day today, you know? And so to be at a church that was like, hold, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. There, there actually is a therapeutic uh, aspect of these things, but it comes through uh, the truth of these core doctrines that all Christians for all time have always believed. Mm. And, uh, let's focus on those. And then we can start to move out the rings a little bit and, you know, have some debates and discussions and, you know, make up our minds and, and different things like that. But really let's focus on what is Christianity proper, you know, and then, uh, and then how does that apply to your life? Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's just, it was meeting pastors who cared for me. It was, it was a whole bunch of different things, uh, that kind of all came into, into one. Well, as we uh, as we get towards the end of our conversation today, I do want to offer folks some techniques or tips, but also some resources. I know you had mentioned some books that uh, have been helpful for you. Um, obviously, your your blog, I think, is going to be a good one. But on our way to that part of the conversation, something you highlight in your article is that deconstruction can often have a horseshoe effect. And I think, and correct me if, if you weren't coming from this point of view, but I think that's because as humans, we can't live with a certain level of uncertainty. So, so we, we need certainty, we crave it. And sometimes deconstruction, I think, is prompted by um, falsely placed certainty or falsely placed confidence. Now, a true faith, Hebrews 11 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. 
So the Bible itself tells us that there's a distinction between faith and certainty. And yet a lot of times as Christians, we feel like we should just have 100% certainty about all the doctrines that we believe about God and life and the faith. And that any doubt or any uncertainty is somehow a negative thing that it, it means that we aren't sincere in our faith. So there's a lot there. I, take it any direction you want to take it. If you want to dive into the idea of the horseshoe and why even people who deconstruct end up being eerily similar in a similar place to their state of mind before they deconstructed, or just this idea of how doubt and faith are not incompatible. Yeah, well, I, I completely agree with you. I think we're, we're tracking the same wavelength on this. I'm just thinking how, like, you know, in, in, you know, there's no one deconstruction circle, but in some bigger deconstruction circles, you know, the tendency is to want to say, well, I don't need certainty. I can live in the ambiguity. I can live in the mystery. I can accept all of that. There's something to be said for that. I mean, a verse that I've been pondering the past few days has been, you know, in First Corinthians 4, where Paul says that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. Right. There is absolutely mystery and it's actually something for us to steward. And, you know, and so there's something mm. to be said for that. Right. And there's a lesson to be learned there for some churches and traditions and Christians. Like let's, maybe we don't need a hundred percent certainty on everything. Right. Maybe we should lean into this mystery and instead of trying to steward certainty, steward mystery. Right. So I understand the, the, uh, inclination there. Right. But, uh, but uh, you're right. And I agree with you in that there's only so much mystery that we can handle. And the Lord knows that that's why the, the Lord is incredibly mysterious and he has revealed himself to us so that we can actually know him. Right. The spirit is the spirit that searches the Lord is a spirit that's in us. That's how we can know him. That's the two chapters before that verse about mystery in first Corinthians two. Right. So, I mean, so it, there is a both and going on here If we need mystery, but we also need something that we can build our lives on. We need a foundation. We need something that we can grasp on and actually mm. move through life with, or we're going to be crushed by that ambiguity, right? That mm -hmm. mystery that if it's all mystery, <laughs> if we can know anything, then we're lost at sea in terms of our right. identity, in terms of morality and ethics, in terms of meaning, in terms of purpose, what should we do? Who are we? We don't have answers to any of these things. And we need that. We need some level of anchor in our soul that we can put down in the waves and say, I know this to be true. Hmm. And so I think that's where some of this horseshoe effect comes along, right? It's because on one side that people are deconstructing out of, you have kind of a fundamentalist attitude. I know fundamentalist means different things as well, but for the, for shorthand sake, you know, kind of this fundamentalist attitude of saying, well, we are entirely certain in all of these doctrines and all of this history and all of these things. Yeah. Uh, and if you deviate even, <laughs> you know, one or two degrees off of that, you've, you've basically left the faith, right? Right. And then on the other side, if you lean into the full mystery and you start being crushed by that, you start looking for something to, to find those things from. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, people find it from different things. The fastest growing religion in America right now is Wicca. People are, you know, people mm -hmm. are turning to witchcraft for this stuff. I, that right. sounds crazy to say in 2023 in some circles, mm -hmm. but actually it's exactly what's happening, but that's not it for everyone. I think the one that people are most familiar with is, uh, 
is politics, right? I mean, you turn to politics, you turn to policies, you turn mm. to a strong sense of justice, the same sense of justice that God has for the downtrodden, for the oppressed, right? right. Uh, but then that becomes your certainty. Well, I may not know about all these doctrines, but I know this. I know that we can, you know, fight for justice and care for the poor, care for the poor and care for all these people. And I just want to say, man, Maybe, maybe one, we can hold both those things insert uh, together. Mm-hmm. And two, maybe there's a level of, uh, things we know and things we don't know about both of them. Right. Um, and so just trying to, uh, lower our certainty on, on both of them, but acknowledge right. that we can know something about both of them, uh, at the same time. Right. But just having that level of epistemological humility saying I'm doing the best that I can to make the most sense of the data points that I have. Right. And, um, and working through that, just being honest about it and saying, uh, I don't know entirely, uh, with a hundred percent certainty what I believe about X. What I know is from the data that I see in scripture, uh, that I can think through in church history and all these different places. Um, this makes the most sense of the data that I see. I could be wrong. Uh, but I, I think by doing that, you give yourself enough certainty to act and mm-hmm. to actually be able to do things and to take that next step forward without mm-hmm. being crushed by either ambiguity or certainty. Because I don't think you can uphold 100% certainty forever. Again, yeah. something happens. Suffering happens. A crisis happens. Something can puncture that certainty really, really easy. It's extremely fragile. Uh, right. But I don't think that means you can't move forward with conviction about something uh, honestly. Just, you know, move forward because you're looking at what you see and say, this is the best I got. I'm going to move forward because that's what I have. Yeah, man, there are so many things that I want to dive into here. Uh, one is just this idea that all of us, we we crave, um, I don't know if safety is the right word, but again, because because we lack all knowledge. So we have limited, limited understanding and limited knowledge. That's that's a truism for all humanity. A second aspect of that is that we're, we're very fragile. So the more you understand how big the world is and how little you understand, and the more you understand how little control you have. Now, this is not just for Christians. This is for all people. All of us wrestle with, with this, this angst as we begin to discern how little we know and how little control we have and how small we are in this massive universe what what happens is we that's why we worship we have to worship every person has to worship seen a certain way worship is simply looking to a higher power a higher source uh, looking to experts uh, looking to someone who knows better and is strong enough to act on your behalf and so you're right i think um expertise um politics these are things that people have begun to put hope into because you have to, you can't just be this uh, cork floating on the ocean and have any sanity in life, uh, which is which is what you have if you just have uncertainty and, and you embrace mystery um, with abandonment. Um, I love the title and the theme of doctrinal probabilities, just just because because it gets to this. It's point. kind of a boring headline, <laughs> but see, uh, people need to read this because what you are digging into is. Faith does not equal certainty. And this is this even gets into apologetics where people who are trying to defend the faith oftentimes 
you know, the, the accusation is that you can't prove God. The inference being that you can't, you can't provide me with something that is irrefutable, that is 100% certain. And of course we cannot, because that's not what the Bible ever offers or that God has ever offered. So faith is not a matter of certainty. It's a matter of confidence and confidence is rooted in probability. So it's not rooted in just um, irrational, blind acceptance of, of doctrinal precepts, right? Um, so going back to your comment on fundamentalism, I, a quote that I've heard that I think captures what I would think of when, when I think of fundamentalist um, ideology is, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And uh, someone who grew up in the South, you know, you would hear that or you would definitely get that impression is that, hey, it's in the Bible, that's good enough for me, I don't have to understand it. And I don't think God is calling us to that kind of unquestioned faith. You know, we should seek truth, um, but faith is the confidence of things hoped for. It's not the certainty. And hope itself, like Paul says, you know, hope is rooted in something that we haven't yet seen, like who hopes for what he has seen. So this, the whole nature of faith is rooted in uncertainty, but probability. <laughs> so I, I, I love what you're getting at there. And you actually get into percentages. I think at one point in your article, you talk about a 5149. So let, let's shift gears a little <laughs> bit, because one of, the, one of the suggestions you give for people in trying to have a, a, a genuine faith that can stand up to suffering um, crises is this idea of ordering, rank ordering your beliefs. And I think you, you talked about a, uh, ordering them in three parts. So maybe share just a little bit about why that's important and how that can help. Yeah, there's this idea um, called theological triage, which ironically a little bit was uh, kind of developed by Al Bowler from uh, Southern University. It's kind of funny looking back now on, but it's really kind of uh, expanded upon by Gavin Ortland in a book called Finding the Right Hills to Die On. And it's this idea of not every doctrine is of the same importance. The doctrines that we find in the Apostles and Nicene Creed are not the same thing about what you think about in times, right? Mm -hmm. You know, these are, these are not the same things. There are things that we have always confessed as the church to be essential to the Christian faith. Uh, and then there's things that we've debated for all of church history and we've never come to a conclusion on, you know, mm, right. there's people who have been in, uh, in different camps this whole time. Uh, and then there's other things too. I mean, there's uh, more uh, kind of modern debates that like we haven't had to think a lot about until it comes along. Right. I don't know how many people were questioning, uh, you know, a young earth creation until Darwin came along. There's kind of a new, new mm. issue that we have to wrestle through as a church, right? You know, and so these different things that people come onto the scene with, and and what you have in fundamentalism, the way mm. I think about fundamentalism is they they sort of flatten all these things out. Mm. Everything is on equal level, and they and th unfortunately, a lot of times your political persuasion is one of these things, right? If you don't vote Republican, you're not a Christian. Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that, right? And so you know, this, this flat line where everything is equal. If you start to question, uh, you know, premillennial dispensational, uh, interpretation of end times, right mm -hmm. now, next thing you know, you're questioning the gospel. You're questioning, you're questioning, is Jesus really, you know, the whole thing falls apart like a Jenga tower and you could do this about anything. You know, if you, 
think I'm trying to think of like I don't know. I, I'm everything is controversial to everyone, but like I don't know. If you think women can be deacons in the church, right? It's right. Like, well, you're questioning the authority of scripture, which means you're questioning. The, it's like, hmm. oh man, now everything's everything's falling apart, right? Right. And it's just not. That's just not the case. Like our our faith does not rest on everything. Our faith rests on a few things, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. did Jesus live? Did he die? Did he rise again? (laughs) Is he coming back again one day? Is God Trinity, the Holy spirit, father, son, Holy spirit, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, these things matter. These things, those things really, really matter. What you believe about the Bible really, really matters. Um, you know, what you believe about baptism is important. It's very important, Mm -hmm. but it's not the gospel and you can have differences of opinion and still be Christian and still get along with people. And you don't have to be a hundred percent certain about all those things either, which is why I kind of come this idea that with the idea of doctrinal probability sort of takes this idea of theological triage one step farther. Right. It's saying you can rank these, but I think the impression that I still got for a really long time is okay. But even in my secondary tertiary issues, I need to know, like, I need to know what I believe. Mm. Um, and I need to, I need to, you know, know with a hundred percent certainty. And then I kind of started to realize that in and of itself is also not possible. <laughs> I need to believe I, in order to hold a conviction, I need to believe something more than I don't believe it. You know, I have mm. to, I have to think one belief is more probable than another belief. Like you said, that could be a 51, 49% split. And right. so I'm like, Hey, I really don't know, but from what I can tell, this seems I, th- I'm more convinced of this than not. Right. Barely, you know, right. <laughs> that might be more or less than some other things. Right? right. You know? And so I think it's trying to introduce this idea of probability into the, the rank order of the triage of just saying, Hey, so like for me, you know, here's a great example. I go to a Baptist church. We're not Southern Baptist, but we're Baptist. So I hold to a credo Baptist position by virtue of signing a covenant that allowed me to be a member. Right. I mm-hmm. officially am a credo Baptist. I think the arguments for paid baptism are extremely compelling. Right, I you, think they you, are. You're going to have to break this down uh, um, for our audience. Not that our okay. audience is uneducated, but just just quickly, like credo versus paid baptism. Credo baptism is believers baptism. Only people who have you know, preferably adults right. who have uh, made a profession of faith baptized. Paid baptism is uh, infant baptism. Infants, you right. know, yeah, infant. So you know, Presbyterians, Methodists, Catholics, uh, <laughs> most people besides Baptists. But right. uh, so I mean, I I, fi- I find the arguments for paid about for infant baptism very compelling. Mm-hmm. I think they're very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, I am I, when I look at the, when I look at the Bible, when I look at Scripture. When I look at church history, mm-hmm. uh, I'm convinced I like I didn't forge my signature on that on that, you know, uh, confessional statement. I believe it. I believe <laughs> I believe crude baptism. I believe in believers baptism. Uh, barely. I think I think yeah. it slightly makes more sense uh, of the data than uh, infant baptism. So, does. but to but to my church's credit, I want to say this to my church's credit, even though we're confessionally Baptist, they practice theological triage in the in our statement of faith. If you go right. look at it, we have baptism on there. It mm-hmm. articulates a believer's baptism stance and it is listed as a distinctive, yes. not as a core doctrine. Mm-hmm. And so they say, mm-hmm. Hey, here's what we're going to practice. Here's what we're going to teach. Here's what we're going to believe. We mm-hmm. expect you to submit to this, but if you don't agree, you can still become a faithful member of this church. Right. And I think that's important. And this is where 
something as simple and basic as a statement of faith as a church can mm-hmm. become a really, really helpful ministry tool in trying to navigate some of these divisions in the church uh, and even doubts. We go back to deconstruction. What if I'm questioning something on this on end times and I feel really anxious about it? Well, have you made it a core part of your church or is mm-hmm. it a distinctive where, hey, this is what we believe. You can disagree and still be a part of the church. Just mm-hmm. so you know, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's helpful. Yeah, so we've covered a lot of ground here, and I think this is, in some ways, this is the most practical, um, helpful a part of your article is getting into, I often talk about implications and applications. So if we understand uh, the issue, which is the nature of faith itself and the challenges that living in our modern world presents people of faith. Okay, we, we understand that. Okay, how do we address it? How, how do we move forward in a way that makes sense, but also does justice and and does right by the call to know what we believe, know why we believe it? And so you've talked about a few things here. I just want to sort of summarize them so that we can maybe give a, a few final thoughts and and then we'll talk about some resources. But so you, the first thing you talked about is is theological triage, this idea of rank ordering your beliefs. And you suggest just have a primary, secondary and tertiary. So we're not called to defend every belief that we have with equal fervor. There there are some things that are essential. And, you know, the the gentleman who discipled me, who we're going to have on the uh, the podcast here in a few weeks, uh, Cecil Bean, and he's been on the show before. Some of our listeners will recognize that name. But the way he described this, and this really uh, stuck out to me when I read your article, is he would talk about things written in blood, things written in pen, and things written in pencil. So if primary, secondary, and tertiary, if you need kind of a more visual metaphor, you know, those primary things are written in blood. Um, these things divide being a Christian and not being a Christian. And, and they're of utmost importance. Um, secondary level, we're talking about things written in pen. Uh, you have strong convictions about this, but you recognize that there are other believers, people who have genuine faith, who view it differently or maybe don't view it with the same intensity that you do. And then pencil, these are things that you have a take. So there's a, there's a question that, that people ask about scriptures and, and faith, and you've thought it through, you have a take, but you recognize that, hey, this is, this is my belief, but I, I wouldn't, you know, go to the mattress for this. <laughs> like, it, it's okay. And you, I might, the way I often say this is, if I stand before God in heaven and find out that I was totally wrong on this, it's not going to be a big deal to me. Like, oh, okay, yeah, uh, not a surprise. But the second thing you talk about there is probabilities. And so even am- amongst these different levels of, of doctrinal importance, how confident can you be? And one thing that you mentioned in the article, I don't know if you want to dive into it here, but it's the idea of the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which, bro, I had never heard of before. But uh, when you broke it down, it, it made a lot of sense. And you even touched on it just a little bit there when you were talking about baptism, looking at one of the ways that we would try to ascertain is to look at the historical church. So maybe share just a little bit about ways that we can find those probabilities. Yeah, so that the Wesleyan quadrilateral is, you know, attributed to John Wesley. And it's this idea that you kind of arrive at 
doctoral conclusions by way of four ways, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. And, uh, you know, in the Reformation, I mean, I'm Protestant, which again, this is kind of a funny thing that's become more important to me <laughs> over the years than yeah. it probably ever has been. Uh, but, you know, being a good Protestant, I believe in uh, sola scriptura, right? Scripture alone. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that, uh, that means scripture is our, our final authority, right? That doesn't mm-hmm. mean that the only way we derive our belief is from scripture alone, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, scripture doesn't, isn't meant to serve that purpose, right? And so what we're supposed to do in this kind of framework is kind of go down the list, if you will. Uh, so where scripture is super duper clear is like, that's what we believe. And scripture will always be our final authority. We are always, always going to test tradition, ex- reason and experience by scripture. And if one of those three contradicts scripture, scripture wins. And there's some mm-hmm. people who try to adopt this quadrilateral and make all four of them equal. And they're simply not. And Wesley mm-hmm. didn't think they were. Everything yeah. is tested by scripture. And so it's a final authority by everything. It's the norm of norms. It's the, it's the, rule of faith. It's everything, right? Hmm. Uh, so scripture, it all comes down to that. But there are some things like we've talked about where scripture just simply isn't clear. Uh, and so that's where you move to tradition. And you just kind of ask, what has most of the church throughout all time believed about this? Hmm. Uh, and this is where things like creeds and confessions have become really important for me. I used to think that a creed was very stifling, you know, believe these few things, and that's what defines a Christian. Hmm. But the more you think about it, the more you realize that those creeds and confessions are actually the exact things that allow you to be more, one pastor of mine calls it intellectually promiscuous, uh, than, than not because you actually have that anchor point to come back to, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of being lost at sea, you actually have a starting place and then you can reach out and explore something there and test that. And if it doesn't work, you come back, you know, and this mm-hmm. is, everything is kind of orbiting around these, uh, these beliefs that the church has always been a witness to. That has always testified is this is what the, what we believe and what it means to be a Christian, because it's truth. Mm-hmm. It's what God has revealed to us. And so you go back to church tradition, uh, church history, and you just ask what has been the prevailing view. And if there's been multiple views, then, you know, then go for it. Like that's when you start diving into those views and, and testing them against scripture mm-hmm. and you end up at some sort of probability. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, and then if church, uh, if, if tradition, you know, that, that kind of goes to the next point. If tradition is unclear, you go to your reason, you start exploring it. You start, uh, trying to, you do, you do theology, which I mean, all of this is doing theology, but I mean, like start trying to put the pieces together yourself and see what comes out of it. It shouldn't be entirely innovative. Hmm. I mean, it shouldn't be something that nobody has ever thought of before. (laughs) Um, but there are certain things where, uh, you know, tradition itself is, is muddy on. And so baptism is a great example of that. Hmm. Everyone wants to make their case that, you know, the early Christians practiced believers baptism and early Christians practiced, you know, if a baptism, it's just not entirely clear. Right. And Hmm. so people have done a lot, of different things throughout the centuries. And so, you know, that's where you use your reason in order to figure some of this stuff out. And then finally, the last priority is your experience. And sometimes we really do just have experiences that puncture a lot of different things and just go, uh, uh, just inform a lot of what we do. Right. Uh, there have been people who have changed their views on the gifts of the spirit, uh, because they were cessationists and they believe that certain gifts died out. And then they had experiences where they said, I don't know what just happened, but that person just got healed after we prayed for them. Hmm. I don't know what that, I don't know what to do with that, but that experience just broke my categories and now I have to figure out what to do with that. Right. And so they're changing their, their theology based on their experience, but that is a way that lines up with 
scripture, tradition, and reason. You can make biblical cases and, and uh, church history arguments for, for that, right? You know, so it's, again, it's not this completely innovative thing. It's something that's still within uh, the the history of the church and the bounds of scripture. Um, but that experience that you had does, did change something, you know, and I think that's a, that's okay to recognize as well. Yeah. I think that presents folks with a, a great framework of, of sorting through what they believe and how much confidence they have in their beliefs, the source of that confidence, um, and also how to go about rooting that confidence in something that's, that's firm because it's, it's rooted in one of those four things. And, and they can point to, this isn't just what I believe, here's why I believe it, here's why I believe it very strongly, or here's why I feel okay with having this conviction, but, but not necessarily um, feeling like I need to fight to convince everybody to agree with me on this particular point. Um, there's, there's freedom where, and that's some, something that our, our, our society has just lost. You know, we, this is much bigger than, than Christianity. And I think it's because, like you said, it's that horseshoe effect where you have to agree with me completely or we can't be friends. We can't even have a conversation. <laughs> um, and it's, it's a shame. But this, this framework that you're presenting, I think, helps people sort that through. Um, hey, we're going to wrap up here. I'll put some resources in the show notes. Uh, both in the video description over on YouTube, but also in the show notes for if you're listening to this in the podcast. But I want you to speak to someone who is currently in that crisis. They're struggling mm. through, do I really believe what I've heard in the past about the Christian faith? And what do I do? Where do I go from here? Um, what would you say to this, this person and how would you encourage them? What I would say to them is that this is extremely normal and people have always wrestled with this. And if you are in an environment in a church right now that doesn't understand that, then I'm just incredibly sorry. I really am sorry. It, that doesn't mean that all of this is a lie and that all of it is fake, but it does mean that it's, it's scary and, and there are, there's a lot of stuff to work through and it's a, it's a really difficult, scary process. Um, I, I recently read this book. It's really short. It's like 100 pages. It's tiny. Um, that talks about uh, Mother, Mother Teresa's diaries, her journals, after she, was, after she died. They were released. And people started reading her journals and were shocked by it. So they read her journals. And she, this is Mother Teresa. She's a saint now, Saint Teresa. I'm not Catholic, but Saint Teresa. And, you know, she she's did incredible work for the, the poor people in Calcutta. They started reading her diaries and she has lines in there like, if I'm to be a saint, I'm to be a saint of darkness. And there's a story of her uh, that she recounted of speaking uh, on this panel with this other priest, uh, one of her most trusted. I mean, she, one of the very few people that she trusted with everything. And, uh, someone asked her about like, you know, how do you like, how do you feel God in all that you do? It's gotta be so difficult. How do you stay connected with God? And she really dodged the question hmm. and she left the stage. And then one of her, you know, kind of helpers brought a letter to this priest. It was a handwritten letter. And it says, all it said was, where's Jesus? This is St. Teresa. Um, and apparently from about the moment she stepped foot in Calcutta, she lost all sense of God's presence in her life. 
And yet she still continued to serve him faithfully. She still continued to serve the poor. She still continued to press in, uh, even though for all intents and purposes, she did not know where God was for decades of her life. That's an extreme example, but I think it's a really good example of someone that we all admire, you know, someone who clearly did wonderful things for the Lord and for others, for people who needed him, who loved her neighbor as herself, who did for the least of these, you know, and, uh, but who went through just a really, really dark spiritual time. Mm-hmm. This is normal. Um, and it doesn't have to be the end of your faith. It doesn't have to be, uh, the end of the the line for, for this. Jesus hasn't forsaken you. Uh, Jesus is with you in it. Uh, and this is something that he does and can use in order to strengthen your faith rather than, than you losing it. I really appreciate that because I think sometimes when we struggle with our faith, we can feel like we've already lost it just by virtue of, of this deep feeling of uncertainty and, and a lack of confidence. And, and that is part of faith is having, having confidence and having that assurance. But it, it's not the end of the story. You're, you're in the thick of it. And what lies on the other side is hopefully a deeper faith in the things of God. But uh, the journey is is worth it. There are some great resources. There are people like like you, Ian, that have come through uh, deep waters in your deconstruction. I, I think I had a similar experience, but uh, mine was more doctrinal. So I'm glad that I worked through that. If I had not gone through that experience, I would not have the faith that I have today which has been so life-giving to me over, over the decades. So I would encourage people that, um, you know, keep searching in some ways that that's what the life of faith is all about is seeking God. And, uh, you know, what was the, what was the quote that when you went to the theology class, what was that? We do theology in the light so we can stand on it in the dark. Yeah, that, that's a big part of, you know, walking by faith and not by sight, I think, is that there is often uncertainty. So confidence acknowledges that part of the journey is is filled with uncertainty. Um, and so we walk by faith. So, Ian, I really appreciate you coming on. We'll talk a little bit more here. And if there are some resources that you would encourage people to, to look into, I've got a couple that I'm going to put in the show notes as well. We'll list those in there, but looking forward to your book coming out next year. Definitely encourage people to go over and subscribe to your Substack. We'll have, we'll have that in the notes and I really appreciate you, man. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's been great. 